Oh, Heavenly Father, you have revealed to us, not only through the Son, but also through the Word, what you are like, what you demand, and what we are like. And it is so kind of you to tell us our problem, so merciful of you to tell us what you are like, and then how rich in love you must be that you would give your own Son so that we could be brought back into a right relationship with you. What mercy, what love, what grace. It is amazing, Lord, that you would do this for sinful human rebels like us. So we thank you that you have disclosed yourself through your word. And so we, as frail human beings, need you to use your word in our hearts to open our eyes and open our ears and open our heart to what you are saying to us today. So Holy Spirit, we ask you to empower your word. We ask you, risen Christ, to be lifted up in this place. And Father, that you would receive much glory from your church under the authority of your word. And we ask this in the name of our risen Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. I invite you to take your Bibles and go to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, uh, verses 9 to 15, our text this morning. This message today concludes um, six messages on the subject of generosity and the matter of giving. And six weeks ago, I shared our vision as elders for what we have called our mission expansion project, which is simply a new facility to the north of this particular facility to expand our vision, our mission of igniting a passion to follow Jesus. My hope and prayer has been that we would be able to pray what David prayed in First Chronicles 29 when he said, O Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand and is all your own. In other words, that we would get it, that we're just giving God his stuff back. So my aim has been to help you savor this moment in our church's history, because you don't come to these moments that often. Fifteen years ago or so, some folks gave generously to provide for this very facility that we worship in today. And we benefit every week from their generosity. Think of the times that you've met with the Lord here. And uh, because of their generosity, you have a place to be able to seek the Lord today. And we have an opportunity to do the same for future generations. But it isn't just about space or buildings. It's also about personally experiencing the joy of giving. I have tried to labor for your joy that you might understand that it is better to give than it is to receive. Very aware of the fact that our tendency is to curl, to take our stuff, our money, our things, and start to curl our fingers around them. And every once in a while, we just need to be reminded that the life of grace is a life with an open hand. So my goal has been not just to help us raise enough money for our target. I hope we certainly do that. That's one goal, but it's not my main goal. The main goal is that you might discover a joy in what it means to give, that you learn that the Bible is true when it says it is better to give than it is to receive. And we've seen that happen in many ways throughout the course of these number of weeks. Now, to kind of reset where we have been, there's 20 principles that we've been looking at in the book 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, 
And if you've not been with us before, what's happened in these chapters is that Paul is writing to a church at Corinth. That's why it's called Corinthians. And he's talking to them about some needs of a church in Jerusalem. They're impoverished, they're hurting, and so he wants to take an offering at this church at Corinth to give it to the saints in Jerusalem. In order to motivate them to give to this offering, he sends, as a part of his letter, these two chapters explaining the concept of generosity. And out of that, we've learned some great principles of what real biblical giving is. There's 20 of them, and so far we've looked at 14. Let me just really quickly review them. First, generosity is motivated through personal example. It's rooted in the grace of God. It's linked to the Lordship of Christ. It's a part of spiritual maturity, and it's a proof of the genuineness of love. Then we also saw that generosity is a reminder about the gospel, that it's rewarded, that it's to come from what you have, meaning you can't give through someone else's wallet. You have to give through your own. You can't pray that someone else is motivated to give. You have to pray about your own heart, that each of us have to figure out how God wants us uh, to give. Also, uh, generosity is rewarded. We're laying up treasures in heaven. It's to come from what you have. I already said that. Number nine, generosity is part of God's plan for provision, which means this, that in the um, Old Testament, God rained down manna on the Old Testament saints. That was his way of providing food for them while they were in the wilderness. In the same way, God now provides the needs of people in our culture by giving us not only what we need, but also an abundance so that we can then distribute to people who have needs. So God's delivery system is to put on our hearts to be able to meet the needs of other people. Number 10, generosity is worth hard work. It's also based upon a promise. It's to be done in freedom. And then 13 here, generosity is worthless without joy. I don't know if you know this or not, but every Sunday we pre-publish the manuscripts. About a thousand of these every Sunday that we give out, they're at the usher's desk. And you can use this as a take-home or something to take notes on. But today it's kind of important because you'll notice after point 13, there's a very large footnote down at the bottom. And what is that footnote? Well, you can read it when you get home, but essentially it is a what's called a mea culpa. You see, a couple weeks ago when I was working through this text, I taught you something that's technically true, but the illustration that I gave was inaccurate. And in fact, I love College Park Church because there's people in the audience who have Greek New Testaments in their lap. And they know that when I say a Greek word means a certain thing, if it doesn't, I'm going to get an email. Well, guess what I got? I got an email telling me, um, person was very kind. I'm not sure, I don't really know the language really well, but I don't think that that's what that word means. And I had a panicked feeling like, no, I think I got this right. Went back and looked, and sure enough, I had got it wrong. So what you see there is a correction to my error. However, the point is still true, okay? So (laughs) just to be clear, okay, the point still stands, okay, even if the translation wasn't accurate. And you can read it in the uh, manuscript to see what it was that uh, I missed. Read it when you get home, okay? Number 14 is this. Generosity is living on future grace. What is that? This is this great concept coming out of verse 8, which means that God is able to provide all sufficient grace for everything we face in every circumstance. And the idea was this, life-changing, this concept, if you get it, is that God promises he's going to take care of you. It's going to meet your needs. He's going to give you grace. And living on future grace means you believe that. So every time you give money away, what are you doing? You're believing God. You, You see this, you know this, you're going to take care of me. You trust in your giving. And that's what future grace is. Now, we have six more principles that we're going to look at. 
The first of these six remaining principles, or point number 15, is this, that generosity is a spiritual catalyst. What do I mean by catalyst? I mean that in doing something, it creates something even more, that it it creates an exponential effect. What's interesting is that right after Paul talks about this future grace concept in chapter 9 and verse 8, where he says that my God is able to make all grace abound to you, he then quotes Psalm 112 right next to it in verse 9. You see it? It says, He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now, when I first looked at that passage, I was assuming that the He in verse 9 is referring to God. That God was the one who's distributed freely. That God is the one who's given to the poor. That God's righteousness endures forever. No, not so. If you were to look at Psalm 112, you would find this great psalm that talks about God's ability to provide for people. That he's a stronghold, that when danger or hardship comes, you don't fear. It's a psalm that says, God, you are on my side, I can trust you. It's a psalm that talks about why giving makes sense if God is on the throne. And therefore, it says, he has distributed freely. That's the righteous man or woman. He has given to the poor. That's the righteous man or woman. His righteousness endures forever. Why is that important? Here's why. Because what Paul is doing here is showing us that giving, listen, is one of the most important spiritual things that a follower of Jesus does. That giving and righteousness are absolutely linked together because of everything that comes through the process of giving. So giving is a spiritual catalyst. Listen, something happens when we give. It becomes a catalyst that creates something more. Here's what you do. When you give, you're taking human man-made currency. Okay, You're taking like a check that you wrote. Like I wrote a check this morning, put it in the offering plate, and that check represents, it better represent money in the bank account, right? Or when you put cash in an offering plate, or when you give cash to somebody else, you're taking human currency, man-made currency. That money is supposed to represent value. used to be it was all connected to gold. The country went off of that. Now it's just connected to this concept that it's worth something. And what's the guarantee that that money is going to really buy you something? Well, it's a little symbol in the bottom corner that says it's FDIC insured. And what that means is this, is that this piece of paper is as sure as stable, as rock solid as the financial solvency of the United States government. That's what it means. Man, don't you feel good now? Woo! Man, I feel a lot better now. FDIC insured. As strong as the government is, so strong is this bill. Okay? Take that home and think about that for a little bit. So, here's the crazy thing. When you give money, you're taking man-made currency with pictures of our presidents, many of whom you can't remember what they did or why they're there, but they're there, and you see their picture, um, and, and you're giving money away, and you're taking our little paper that God must look at and just laugh at, and then here's what happens. We give it, and then God uses it, and a new currency is created, a new value is created of spiritual blessings in the lives of other people. In the Middle Ages, there was a practice called alchemy, also known in the Renaissance time period. Alchemy was this philosophical and practical experiment. It's actually the foundation of modern-day chemistry. Alchemy was the attempt to take baser metals and make them into gold, to try and find some sort of equation or other chemicals that you could take rocks. Could you imagine this? Taking rocks out of your parking lot. Could you imagine if we figured this out? Talk about gravel being godly. If we could figure this out, man, we could build this building like that. And you could somehow make little rocks into gold. 
And then they thought if they could do that, they could find that combination. Then they could create other things that would be the elixir of life. So the idea was take something that's nothing and then make something really valuable out of it. I'm telling you, when you give your money away and God uses it to do gospel work, you're doing Christian alchemy. You're taking something that's of lower value, a $5, a $20 bill, and you're actually converting it into spiritual resources. So giving is a spiritual catalyst. In this passage, in verses 9 through 11, there's three things that happen. First, there's actually even more capacity. In verse 10, there's a promise. It says, God will multiply your seed for sowing. So what happens here is there's even more capacity. Here's the promise that God is going to give you more opportunity, sometimes more money, sometimes more grace, but a greater opportunity for more future ministry. So there's more capacity. He's actually quoting there from Isaiah 55, verse 10. And then not only that, but he's also quoting from Hosea 10, 11 in regards to sowing. He says, he will multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness, which means that there's going to be an increase not only of opportunity, but an increase of righteousness, that there's more capacity. Secondly, now there's more righteousness. So Paul saw giving as a, um, as a, as a means of creating more opportunity for people to seek the Lord, more opportunity for righteousness to grow. And then finally, there's even more opportunity for other forms of generosity. Verse 11, you will be enriched in every way for all your generosity, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. So you hear that? You'll be enriched for all your generosity. So the idea is that you actually have opportunity for even more generosity than what you had before. In other words, being generous at one level actually begins to create a generosity at multiple levels. You begin to discover that it's actually fun and joyful when you give things away. And you begin to learn, look, I can not only do that with my money, I can do that with my time. I can do that with a parking lot, a parking space in a parking lot. I can do that with my family time. I can even do that in the grocery line at Aldi's. Okay? Let me tell you what happened two weeks ago. I was at Aldi's doing some shopping for the family, and I'm too long in my lane, and I got this really large cart with all sorts of food on it, and behind me there's a long line, three or four other people. They just rang the bell, and the person came up, and they're like a long line. They're trying to get people over here, and, and lo and behold, while there's this long line of people, this woman cuts in the middle of the line. Okay, so you ever heard the phrase, scratch an adult, you'll find a junior hire? Well, let me tell you what happened, okay? So all of a sudden, from behind me, I hear this, hey, no cuts. And I was like, oh, well, what's this? Like flashback, you know, no cuts. And I'm like, whatever. I turn around, and this lady is like seriously torqued because this lady cut in line. She's like, hey, no cutting. We're all in line here. Well, it turns out the woman who cut was deaf. She couldn't hear her. And so the guy behind her said, hey, back off. And I was like, I'll get my car. Yeah, I'm like, get out of here. <laughs> like, fight on aisle three. You know, I mean, it was kind of, it, what happens is all of a sudden self-centeredness comes out with cuts in the line for groceries. So here's the thing. That's the way we are as human beings. And when you begin to be generous and kind and you start saying, oh, no, you go ahead. Go ahead of me. People are going to be like, what planet are you from? you will begin to demonstrate over and over this capacity for more generosity. You'll be more generous with your time, more t- more generous with your stuff, with your reputation. You will learn, listen, that God can be trusted and you will become even more generous. And it starts with giving money away. 
So giving does something for the giver. It, it helps in the inside to create this spiritual catalyst. Now, point number 16 is this. Generosity also is a means of creating gratitude. I love this. Verse 12, look at it. For the ministry of this service, listen carefully, is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. Hear it? Paul says that there's two things going on. Your giving has a twofold effect. On the one hand, it meets the needs of people, but it also does something else. It actually creates gratitude to God. Well, how so? Well, remember we had learned in chapter 8 and verse 14 that God's delivery means of providing for people is to do that through us. He does it a lot of other ways too, but one of the main ways that God provides is through putting on on our hearts to be able to give to others. So he provides through the generosity of us to be able to meet each other's needs. And that happens in multiple ways. It could happen if you bring a meal over to someone's house, if you give someone a gift. It also happens, by the way, if you're a small business owner or a large business owner and you have employees that work for you and their livelihood, their their families are living on your business. And every year at the end of the year, profits come and you got to decide, do we grow the business? Do we spend this? Do we take just a bonus or do we let this trickle down and give our employees a raise? And you need to know that for those of you who run your own business, when you take care of your employees and you, you are generous, you're not just running a business. Look, you're doing gospel ministry work. You're actually part of God's flow, being a conduit of, of provision to those people that are underneath your care. What an opportunity. So see your business even as ministry, not just as a separate thing from what you do in terms of your relationship with Christ. So when Paul looks at giving, he sees it as something that will create gratitude in the heart of the person who receives the gift. What happens is this person has a need, they cry out to God for their need, and then you, by virtue of your generosity, meet that need, and what are they going to do? They're going to be thankful that God heard their cry. So the amazing thing is, is then we get to use man-made human currency and it actually creates gratitude to God. So while earthly people are involved and earthly resources are used, the person who receives the gift knows that it's really from God. And through giving, we pour into the lives of others and a beautiful overflow of gratitude to God happens. So giving goes in and gratitude comes out. So I was thinking about this this week. Imagine just the amount of need that's within our city. Imagine it like an aroma. Imagine every need that ever happens from a person's heart or mouth. It's like an aroma that floats up to heaven, to God's throne. And imagine the aroma of what God hears or smells every day. I mean, I don't know about you, but sometimes I just am so weary of what I hear on the news Bad thing after, and that's just a sliver of what's really going on. That's just the stuff we know about. The stuff that got reported. Empty cupboards, delinquent bills, foreclosures, broken marriages, runaway kids, abuse, violence, injustice, all this stuff that God sees and hears, and He knows all of it every day. And listen. When you and I are a part of meeting the needs of hurting people who are in the midst of their hour of desperation, and when we meet their needs and gratitude flows to heaven, you change the aroma from God help me to God you helped me. We get to be a part of changing what comes out of our own city. 
That's one of the reasons why I love what's going on in the Brookside neighborhood through the efforts of our church. We are literally changing the aroma of what's coming out of the neighborhood called Brookside because of our gospel-empowered desire to see lives changed. And when that happens, gratitude is created. So think of this. Gratitude is actually created by human currency. It also relates to what happens in this space. Think of how many songs have been sung in this space over the last 10, 15 years. Think how many times somebody has been here and understood for the first time their need to have a personal relationship with Christ. And and the first prayer, the first real prayer they prayed was, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And then think of the gratitude that they feel for this very location. And imagine with me a location where even more opportunity for that exists. And we get to be a part of the story of creating a space where gratitude flows up to the throne of God. So Paul sees giving as creating gratitude, but there's more here. He also sees it as an opportunity for God to be glorified. So gratitude is one piece. There's another, and that is for God to be glorified. Look at verse 13. By their approval of this service, he's referring to the folks in Jerusalem, by their, their, said, wow, look what's going on here. They will glorify God because of your submission flowing from your confession of the gospel. So there's an opportunity for God to be glorified. It'd be like this. If you have a need and then somebody meets your need, that you'd say something like this. Honey, look what came in the mail. That was so kind of them. Oh God, you are awesome. It's that, that you were a part of creating, that you were a part of the switch in the heart that says, look, honey, God met our need and then returning, not just gratitude, no, even more, not just saying thank you, but saying, God, you are awesome. The gift creates the gratitude, but then it creates something even more. Gratitude is just expressing thanksgiving to God for His provision, but glorification, oh, that's a whole nother thing. Glorification is worshiping God for who He is. Gratitude says, thank you for meeting my need. Glorification says, oh, you are so worthy to be trusted. And imagine if you could take a $5 bill and create that in someone's heart, or $100, or $1,000. You could create the glorification of God in the heart of a human being. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says, what is the chief end of man? Answer, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. In other words, the bottom line of the bottom line of the bottom line as to why everything is here, why why babies and butterflies and birds and trees, why the Bible, why we here, why is everything here? One reason, it is to glorify the Creator. That's why everything exists. It exists for one reason, to glorify God. What is sin? Sin is an aberration of the glory of God. And the reason there's separation from God is because sin, by definition, is an offense to the glory of this Creator God. So when we are able to create the glorification of this God by virtue of our FDIC-insured money, what a beautiful thing that is. So when your generosity is received by someone who then glorifies God, you have been part of a very important spiritual process. And listen, if you're a believer in Jesus, you you have to know there's no greater goal, there's no more worthy cause, nothing more valuable in all the world than the glory of God. And think of it, that your money is a part of creating the glorification of God. That is so right. Number 18. Generosity is also a motivator for prayer. 
So generosity not only creates gratitude and the glorification of God, it creates something else. It creates prayer. Look at what it says, verse 14. And while they long for you and pray for you. So Paul envisioned that when this gift would be received by the Jerusalem saints, they would see it, they'd be thankful, they'd glorify God, they'd be amazed at what God was doing, and then they would pray for the saints at Corinth. The gift would create this urgency to really pray for that group of people. Now Paul wasn't saying that your motivation for giving should be prayer, but he was saying the effect of it will be prayer. So think of this, that by using human man-made currency, we not only create gratitude and, and, and also a glorification of God, we create the opportunity for God to motivate the heart of someone else to pray, and specifically to pray for you. Now one of the reasons this is so significant in this text, little background, is that the people in Corinth were primarily Gentile and the people in Jerusalem were primarily Jewish. And as Christianity was birthed in the first century, there was this constant tension between Jews and Greeks. There was a racial issue, an ethnic issue. And so Paul wanted this church at Corinth, a primarily Gentile church, to give generously to the Jewish church because he knew this gift would go a long way in saying, we love you and we're all part of one family. And it's just a beautiful thing to realize that this gift was actually a peace offering, so to speak, a way to build a bridge of grace between folks who maybe didn't see eye to eye. You know, one thing just for you to take away from this message today might be this. If there's someone in your life who every once in a while it's a little hard for you to get along with, or maybe someone who's a little different than you, or maybe even someone of a different background, it's a really good thing to make them a specific target, if you will, or a specific recipient of some way for you to be generous. Generous with your greeting, Generous with your time, generous with your money, generous in some way, because you can actually begin to build a bridge of grace. What Paul says here is that giving has this possibility that it actually creates prayer, that love flows and prayer flows as well. It's just amazing to think that our human currency can create all this stuff, that it takes worthless human ideas in regards to financial policy and money and all of that, and we're able to convert that into spiritual resources. It's just stunning. 19, generosity is also life change on display. Verse 14 continues. While they long for you and pray for you, why? Because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. So the reason that they were praying for them was because they saw the surpassing grace of God on them. In other words, what giving does is it shows other people that God is at work in our lives, that God is working to create this generosity. Again, why? Because naturally we're sinful and selfish people. We only think of ourselves. We hoard. We do the curl with our things. Verse 13 highlights, or... Verse 14 rather highlights that they saw this surpassing grace upon them. So giving demonstrates the work of God in your heart. It gives tangible evidence of God's ability to produce good things out of sinful people. This is one of the reasons why I don't particularly like anonymous gifts. Now, some of you have to give gifts that way or you like to give that. You know what? That's great. You go ahead. And continue doing so if that's the way that you want to give and if that's best for your heart. But here's the little challenge that I have sometimes with anonymous gifts. It's this, that part of the joy and part of the glorification of God for me comes in knowing who it was that gave something. So when I receive an anonymous gift, I can still glorify the Lord. Don't get me wrong. But I glorify the Lord in a much more specific and particular way when it becomes personal. 
When it's somebody that I know, they did that. Oh, God, look at how they're working in And it's easier for me to glorify God through a specific person than an anonymous person. And maybe that's just my issue. I don't know. But it's, it's, it's helpful for me when the person who's given something, I, I know that they're the ones who've done it because it helps me to glorify God through their particular heart given their life circumstance. This last week I heard a story that just reminded me of this. A, a woman um, a number of years ago when the Vietnam War had just ended had heard about uh, boat people coming from Laos and she was moved. Just her heart felt like the Lord wanted her to do something about that. So at her church she volunteered to host um, four teenagers from Laos. And she opened her home for these teenagers to come and live with her and her husband for four months. Now the thing is, is she didn't speak any Laotian. And they didn't speak any English. So when they came in the house, she figured out some Loatian words and she put them on the refrigerator, the bathroom, you know, key areas in the house. And can you imagine inviting someone in your home that, that not only are they different, but you don't even speak the same language? I mean, that's going to be a real awkward dinner the first time you get together, isn't it? I mean, what do you do? How, how do you communicate? And yet she opened her home. After a few months, the Laotian... Uh, teenagers got on their own feet, they found jobs, and they were able to move into an apartment. The funny thing is, is she'd go and check on them, and so she'd, um, because she wanted to be sure they were okay, she would always open the refrigerator door to see what was in the refrigerator to be sure that they were well cared for. Well, the Laotian teenagers thought that was an American custom. And uh, so whenever they went over to their house, the first thing they did after saying hi was they went and checked in the refrigerator just because they thought that was part of the, the culture. But that's one of this the cute story of what happened in this family's life. Well, they got kind of... Um, settled, and then they were able to relocate to Washington State where there were some family members. And, um, you know, every year at Mother's Day, they would send this woman a Mother's Day card just to tell her how much they appreciated her generosity. At her death, uh, a family member called and let uh, the teenagers, now adults, know that she had passed on. And the uh, one of the Loatian girls, now a mom with a couple grown kids, was so moved by the woman's generosity that she flew and took her two kids all the way and visited the funeral to be able to pay her respects to that woman. And they sat in about the fifth or sixth row over here this week. It was a church member of ours named Dottie Takiyoshi, and she opened her home. And the story of her generosity now takes on a whole new color when you know it was someone in this room, a part of this body, who some of you may have even known who lived that kind of life and was that kind of conduit for generosity. And when you do that, listen, you platform the beautiful power of the gospel. You make life change real through generosity. So it might not be money. It might be open in your home. It might be just being concerned for someone on the side of the road. But what you do is you make life change real. Here's the final one from verse 15. Generosity is a celebration of the gospel. Paul ends these two chapters with this single statement. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. He comes full circle and he ends with the gospel. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. What's funny here is the Apostle Paul apparently was so overcome with the power of what he was talking about that he didn't really even have words to describe what he was trying to describe. In fact, this word inexpressible, to our knowledge, it wasn't used at all prior to its writing here. In any extant or classical Greek literature, you can't find this Greek word. Paul made it up. 
He, he developed a word to describe the indescribable. He, why? Because sometimes words aren't weighty enough to hold the glory of what you're trying to describe. I mean, children do this, right? They're trying to describe something that happened, and they don't have a big enough vocabulary to capture it. In fact, Savannah's in that stage right now, and she doesn't have language to describe what she wants to tell you. In fact, her word that she made up recently for what had happened the day previous is this word, Lasterday. <laughs> so that's her word. Lasterday, we went to the store, and I just, I'm not even correcting her. In fact, it's going to be a new word on dictionary.com, Lasterday. I just love it. And she doesn't have words because she's trying to put them together. She's got last and day, and Lasterday, that works instead of yesterday. And so, you know, we do that as well. We, we, we don't have words where you tell someone a story, and you feel like it's going nowhere, and you end it with, well, I guess you just had to be there, right? So you, you just, you can't, you can't describe what's going on. And Paul says, look, it's indescribable. Thanks be to God. He says, for his indescribable gift. It means something so great, something so inspiring, something so beautiful, so wonderful, so magnificent, that words crumble at the attempt to describe it. It means that there aren't sufficient words to capture what he's talking about. So what is it that Paul describes as indescribable, and what is it that is this gift? Here it is. This gift that Paul is talking about is the heart of the Christian faith. The gift that he's talking about is the heart of what the Bible is all about. It's the essence of the difference between heaven and hell. It's the essence of why Christ came. And it is what the Bible calls the good news. It's the gospel. That's what it is. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. It's the gospel. Now, what I did is even though I've told you it's impossible to use words to fully describe this, I gave it my best shot. I wrote four paragraphs. This week I sat my kids down and I said, listen to this. This is the heart of the heart of the heart of the Christian faith right here in four paragraphs. I want to read this to you. There is a triune God who is both creator of everything and infinitely holy. Human beings are natural-born sinners. We violate God's law and face death and judgment in hell from a righteous God because of our passive and active disobedience. Self-atonement is impossible since every sacrifice would be tainted by our sinfulness. In ourselves, there is no hope of reconciliation with a holy God. But the good news of the Bible is that the second person of the Trinity became a man. His name, Jesus. He lived a perfect, sinless life. He was undeservedly executed on a cross, experienced immense shame and painful separation from the Father, personally bore the punishment for the sins of all who would put their trust in Him, rose again from the grave, conquering the power and curse of sin and declaring once and for all that He is Lord. The good news of the Bible is that a holy God has made a way to be forgiven to be changed from the inside out, to be brought back into a right relationship with the Creator. And for those who put their faith 
in Jesus, repent of their sins, and follow Christ, the Father counts Christ's death as sufficient for them, since through Christ the Father adopts them and grants them complete, imputed righteousness. The good news of the Bible is that based upon the finished work of Jesus, a holy God can forgive me, be satisfied with me, can change me, and grant me eternal fellowship with my Creator. Men and women, that is good news. That is the Gospel. This is what it means to be saved. This is the message of the Scriptures. This is the good news of the Gospel. This, this is the inexpressible gift. It was what Paul said when he wrote, For you know that Jesus became poor, though He was rich, so that you could be rich even though you were poor. True generosity then, the kind of giving with which God is pleased, is innately gospel, good news centered. It flows from the gospel because it flows from what God has done. It flows through the gospel because of God working in you. And it flows to the gospel because it shows the world how valuable this grace must be. There's no explanation for generosity unless you have tasted of God's grace. And so therefore, I urge you to use man-made currency to do gospel work. To convert human money into spiritual blessing. To love generosity because we love the good news called the gospel. And every time you give, you anchor your heart to this truth. I love the gospel. I am a gospel-loving man. And therefore, I give because the gospel has been first given to me. I am free and forgiven. And therefore, I can release possessions and time and money because my heart has been transfixed and transformed by the glorious truths of what it means to be a sinner saved by grace. That is an inexpressible, glorious gift. And it serves as the foundation of all giving. So thank you, O risen Christ, that you have made giving a reality because of your first gift in yourself. And thank you that your giving far exceeds our giving in any way. Thank you, O risen Christ, that you who were rich became poor so that we who were poor could become rich. And I pray, O God, out of the out of the people who are here today that you would release an an avalanche of gospel-centered generosity. And Lord, I pray that you would take us back to the reality of what this gospel means, that we can be forgiven through the shed blood of Christ. And as Newton said in Amazing Grace, it is such a sweet sound because it saves a wretch like me. We are naturally born sinners, Lord. And apart from your mercy, there'd be no hope, there'd be no help, no meaning in marriage, no purpose to life. 
only judgment. And it would feel like life on earth. Oh God, we pray that you would open our hearts to how you want us to give, what kind of generosity you want us to live out, and to see that your kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. We love you, Lord, and are so grateful that your inexpressible gift is the ground of all generosity. Oh, we're grateful. And we give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, listen, before you go, if, if, if you need to pray with someone this morning, something's going on in your world, you don't understand this thing called the gospel, the heart of the Christian faith, there'll be some folks up here, they'd love to talk with you, pray with you. We still want you to leave here unloved or unhelped today, all right? All right, hey, listen, God bless you. Have a wonderful day. I love you. Thanks for coming.